0: Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, your weekly guide to the biggest TV news. In late March 2020, TV producers were readying themselves for what had become very apparent would be a great deal of time away from the set and locked up at home. One year on, we assessed the state of play as Broadcast's annual indie survey paints a rather different picture from one anyone could have imagined in early 2020. Jesse Whittock joins me, Max Goldbart, to dissect. And later, we have an exclusive interview with the one and only Paul Feig. All that, plus what we've been watching on this week's Broadcast News Wrap. So here we are, Jesse Wittock, Broadcast Insight Editor and indie survey guru, has slipped into the News Wrap hot seat this week as we reflect on a 12 months of COVID protocols, multiple lockdowns, and just a little bit of peeking into celebrities' living rooms. And Steph McGovern, I'm, I'm looking at you here. Jesse, you're fresh off the back of taking the temperature of, of the indie sector. How are you? I am quite uh, fatigued is the word, Max.
1: It's a a tiring undertaking.
0: Well, that's not what we like to hear, Jesse, but what can you do? And it's it's a great piece of work uh, and we're all very pleased with it. Hopefully some of our listeners caught our Indie Survey reveal event earlier this week and subscribers can also get access to the Indie Survey from now. We're recording on Thursday, the 25th of March. But Jesse, it's great to have you on. Why don't we start by having a little look at the top lines? It's been a crazy year, clearly, for everybody in the world for a whole plethora of reasons, and that craziness has clearly pervaded the TV sector. Did that play out? Did this uniqueness play out in the results of the survey, both financially and in terms of the data?
1: Yeah, that's
0: a nicely framed, Max, and, and you're absolutely right. There were some unique
1: facets to the survey this year. First of all, it was harder to get people to, to, to do the survey than it has been in previous years. And that's completely understandable in a year when everyone's finances are sitting in a completely different place to what uh, most people would have expected. The one thing you have to kind of factor in when you're thinking about the, the production sector and just television in general last year was everyone was faced by a situation that no one had prepared for, right? So you can, you, you can prepare for, you know, a tough financial year. You can prepare for you know, unexpectedly losing a commission or, or um, you know, losing a key staff member to a rival, you can't prepare for the entire industry to shut down for the three months. So we had to really factor that into to, to the report this year. And that's kind of, that, that's sort of where we, we sort of started from, the kind of looking at how resilient the business had been. And that was kind of the the key, the key place we were coming from. You know, if you look at it from a financial point of view, purely... The overall top line number, and this is for all the indies who did the survey this year, that went from 3.4 billion last year to 2.7 billion this year. Now that measure is not particularly fair because there are several large indies who didn't enter this year for various reasons Uh, some of those finance uh, some of those financial in terms of how they're reporting lots of companies have shifted their reporting periods back the government has allowed a lot of companies to do that so a lot of people don't have those numbers to to share Uh, and there's obviously various other reasons but anyway it wasn't that's not a brilliant like for like comparison it's a 21% drop if you look at it purely in those terms but of the 120 indies who did the survey this year Compared to the 143 last year, there was that drop. If you take the 97 companies that did the survey last year and this year, compare those numbers like for like, the survey goes, effectively the numbers change to a combined 2.9 billion last year, dropping to 2.5 billion this year. So that's, that's a pretty hefty drop. That's a 14% drop. It's not quite as big as the as, as the, ah. the overall survey, but it's a it's a pretty hefty drop. Having said that, if you look at business across the board this year, and this is going beyond television, broadly companies are dropping between sort of, you know, 18 and 25%. So you could say that TV perhaps, maybe, maybe, you know, fared ever so slightly better than the sort of general general mean.
0: That's a really good summary, Jesse. Thank you. Um, and I think it, it sets quite nicely where TV has fitted in with the wider economy you know if if we were to be overseeing something like the the live events industry for example then then that situation would most likely look quite a lot more dire but if we if we break it down obviously the the indie survey takes a look at the vast majority of the production companies in the UK who was the most impacted in terms of type of production company I'm kind of presuming it wasn't a good year to be a true indie
1: well it's interesting actually so the
0: anecdotal sort of
1: data set that we get along with the numbers there was a very strong feeling that the, the true indies those who are not consolidated by larger groups had tougher years than those who sat within let's say J or Fremant or, or any of the consolidated groups interesting the data is the exact opposite to this so if you were part of a consolidated group there there was a, well, here's a good way to put it. There was a 17% decline in the top 10 indies in the list who are pretty much all consolidated companies. I think in in fact, I think they are all consolidated companies. The decline for the top 30 true indies, and, t- and true indies are broadly smaller companies. There are there are a few exceptions to that rule if you're looking at Avalon and, and companies like that. But broadly, they're smaller companies, smaller turnovers. So the 30 versus the top 10 is, is a sort of fair comparison. That, that 30 were only down 5%. So actually it's, as it turns out there are certain reasons why being a true indie might have been helpful during covid and we were sort of thinking about this and we've had some debates and spoken to some you know industry sources about why that might be. We think what's probably happened is if you're a a large indie part of a large group and you've got say a staff of uh, 80 or 90 you may well have had to furlough you know 60 70% of your staff you may well have lost some really big expensive you know revenue driving projects which might have either been pushed into the new year or you know rested for a period of time or whatever it was whereas if you're a smaller indie providing you didn't you know completely lose all of your business let's say you had a staff a staff of 6 or so you, you might have been able to get through without having to furlough that many people. Or even if you did, you can almost shut down and your cost base goes from what would have been a lot lower than a, a larger indie who's got a bigger office and bigger overheads in general. And the, the hit that you're actually taking financially isn't as big as if you're a bigger company because there are just purely more costs to pay. So funny enough, even though the indies themselves sort of anecdotally believe that it's the opposite is true. Being part of a bigger group was was not necessarily good last year.
0: That's really interesting, Jesse. That's a really interesting finding. I, I personally would definitely have had it the other way around. And it, it felt to me like the super indie back labels I've spoken to this year have sounded a little bit more confident about the future. They've got that financial backing in place. They've got distribution partnerships more readily in place. But clearly, like there's a, there's a certain almost nimbleness to to not being owned by a larger group that, that has helped us that's that's a really interesting finding so much so much of what we've spoken about this year when when interviewing indies and and writing more in-depth pieces uh, has been around rising production costs i think very early on pact predicted that production costs would go up by around 20 to 30% for each show just by the nature of having to bring in covid supervisors and and the delays having to implement COVID protocols. So what were the Indies saying about these rising production costs? Well, there's, there's a few things at play here. The key thing was
1: the COVID costs themselves. Uh, that that question is clearly one that has divided the industry. And it's clearly something that people have very strong and different opinions on. So, for example, there was a lot of support for the way the SFODs had financed COVID costs and and had and had financed shows in general during COVID it's not a huge surprise considering that the SVODs effectively weren't hit in the same way that the public service broadcasters are particularly the commercial ones who are reliant on an, an ad market which basically died you know if you're Netflix or you're Disney plus and you're just Accrue in new subscribers because everyone's sat at home, um, it's easier then to pay for those additional costs. But having said that, there is st- you know there's there's still a lot of debate around how the broadcasters responded and reacted. And tw- the, I mean the, the damning statistic, if you're an ITV or a BBC or Channel Five or you know, any any of the, the larger broadcasters, is 27% of indies reported that they've received no help at all from broadcasters on COVID-related production costs. And if, like you say, Max, there's a sort of 20% 20 to 30 percent. You know, effective COVID tax on your production in the sense of of those extra costs. That's a lot of money in a year where you're not really turning over very much as it is anyway. So that's a that's a big issue. There are some other you know standout statistics here. Forty one percent of all uh, indies in the survey had hours cancelled due to COVID. So we're not necessarily saying that series. So it might have just been you know it could have been a five parts a five hour series got stripped back to four hours or whatever. But the fact of the matter is. Every hour, which is you know that you're taken away, is lost revenue, and a lot and 41% of companies lost that revenue. I should say, just jumping back slightly, it's important to note that the type of indie you are really depended on or or really gave some indication as to how your year would have gone. So, broadly, scripted indies had a, a much harder time than unscripted indies. Um, scripted indies were down. By an average 20%, so a fifth of revenues across the board, really. And there are some really, really big drops in there. Have a look at the survey. There's some, you know, surprising companies sitting in places in the survey that, in a regular year, they definitely wouldn't be. They'd be much higher up. But they're due to the sort of way that uh, scripted uh, companies account. Effectively, they they account their revenues on uh, green light and then and mainly on delivery, right? that's when their tranches of money sort of unlock. Having shows greenlit but pushed into next year meant that some big companies basically posted virtually no revenue at all. They were obviously able to continue. They weren't, you know, beyond the sort of cash flow issues, they would have known that, that a lot of that money will come back this year because those shows will start getting produced, albeit with, the uh, you know, the, the challenges that, that Scripted still faces right now. But it was definitely a really tough year to be a Scripted Indie.
0: I think that comes as, uh, as again really interesting statistics. I think that comes as a bit of a, of less of a surprise maybe than the true indie stuff. Scripted was was just on on pause really, wasn't it? A lot of a lot of the shows are back up and running now since the insurance scheme came into play, but clearly a, a hell of a lot of stuff has been delayed. Whereas lots of unscripted indies found some really innovative or or inventive ways to keep going, and 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 some have found little niches in in the market and whatnot. But interesting, none the same. I, th- I think you were you were saying to me the other day, Jesse, that the the, the streamers uh, had come in for for praise in terms of the the way that they've covered these costs, the rising production costs. And how did they fare more generally? I know I know that indies were quite impressed with Netflix this year.
1: Yeah. So last year, Netflix were for the first time voted the strongest broadcaster uh, in the indie survey, and we use the term broadcaster very loosely as about. Half the companies in it are now streamers and they were just ahead of the BBC last year. They were top again this year. The difference being they were quite a significant distance ahead of the BBC in terms of this is in terms of of strategy, programming, executives, commissioners, all of that sort of stuff is factored into to this question. I think the reasons behind that are twofold or, or even maybe threefold. Certainly. CoVID didn't impact Netflix in the same way that it impacted the broadcasters, as I previously mentioned, which meant that they were able to commission at pretty regular rates or certainly the rates they wanted to. Secondly, Netflix is spending more money in the UK at the moment and uh, it spent 750 million pounds on UK productions, which is a record last year. So you can see there's more money just washing around in general. so that means more hours for for independent producers and more chances to get shows away with them, sell shows to them. So clearly, Netflix is offering indies this huge opportunity, this huge financial opportunity. And particularly in a year of COVID, I think that that clearly came through that they were somewhat, you know, saviors of of many people's or financial years. And then you've got the likes of, you know, Disney Plus, which has just boomed COVID really like sent that. Streamer from what looked like a great proposition into one of the sort of world's leading media services in a in within a year, and HBO Max is is commissioning at a very significant rate. So all of those uh, all of those streamers came into uh, came in for for cre- credit and and were praised. equal? I mean, this sounds a bit like you know the broadcasters are just being bashed. I mean, that's that's not true. The broad uh, the BBC is still considered the best to work with and uh, has been for a number of years channel four is still considered to be a good broadcaster to work with on the flip side channel four was once again voted the sort of weakest overall they were last year as well we always sort of caveat this with the 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 relationship that channel four has with the indie sector in that you know as a publisher broadcaster indies feel affinity and an affiliation with the uh, with that channel that perhaps it doesn't with others and so I think often you think the 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 sense of feeling is heightened towards them but equally look it poses questions for their management right this is the not the first time this has been they've been voted the the, the weakest broadcaster and that gives them you know a challenge so that they need to that they need to conquer to move up those tables and uh, it'd be interesting to see if they can.
0: I think I remember you saying a very similar thing last year Jesse. So let's see, let's see where we are in March 2022. Again, really, really nice overview. And it, it, it's crazy, isn't it? I, I think I've trotted this statistic out before, but must be so frustrating for those traditional PSBs to hear Netflix being talked up in this way when Netflix really does commission such a tiny portion of the amount of hours of overall TV in the UK. So it's something like it's 10,000 or so hours that the PSB's commission compared to maybe less than 200 or so for Netflix. And obviously you, you, it tends to be, you have to be a really big company or you would tend to be a really big company in order to land that Netflix commission. And, and yet producers really do enjoy working with them. And I think, I think we will see more to come. Uh, incidentally, I, I've been covering uh, the, the DCMS committee future PSB reports this morning thursday the 25th of march and and it's it's quite interesting more more in defence of the psbs in the way so having lambasting the government for missing the boat on licence fee reform and at the same time allowing decriminalisation of non licence fee payment to be a bargaining tool is how the dcms committee explained it so it's a kind of uh, slightly anti-government attack. But on Netflix, the DCMS committee said some interesting things about thinking that the SFODs should really front up and provide more data to the broadcasters, which I thought was was quite an interesting take. And the idea being that if if the BBC has a bunch of shows that are on Netflix's platform, Netflix should be obliged to tell the BBC, at the very least, how many people are watching those shows. And at the most, breaking down the kind of people who are watching those shows so that the BBC can use that to inform what they do with BBC iPlayer or maybe commissioning decisions that they make going forwards. Uh, so I, I thought that was quite interesting. And the DCMS committee is, is also urging Netflix to start releasing diversity data of its own staff, which I think is something that came up in a committee session last year. I think we'll, we'll see more pressure over the coming months. Just to clarify there, Max, this is
1: the, the DCMS's recommendations are relating to acquired programs, right? This is shows that Netflix bought off the BBC or have acquired from ITV or have bought from a third party distributor, but shows that originally aired on channel four or channel five. And it's effectively saying commissioning broadcaster that's done all the work, taking the risk on the investment. It the fact that their product has been sold to a rival should allow them in some way to have some insight into what those products are doing, even if it's just to then know how to sell them again, right? It's, but it's, it's providing them with the data that allows them to to understand what their programs are actually doing because obviously the big criticism of Netflix over the years has been it, the lack of transparency about what is actually happening with programming within Netflix. Folks like you and me, Max, we, we're fed scraps and we just have too often go on on random data that's flung out um, on on viewing statistics from Netflix and from Disney plus and it doesn't often it doesn't really mean very much. Um, Scott Bryan wrote a piece for us in the issue before uh, the one that's published this week and really called out the, the broadcast. he called out the BBC on it as well. but the to understand what those those numbers are that you see thrown out into the public by streaming services, it's virtually indecipherable, isn't it? And and I think what the government are getting at here, or what the what the committee is getting at here, is is a is a request for some sort of transparency about what's actually happening. And and this and this that's definitely going to be a debate that's really pushing the kind of SVOd versus PSB uh, issue over the next few years because at the moment, it does often feel a little bit sort of one-sided in, in favour of the, the the folks who don't really have to be accountable. And you can see why the likes of, you know, the BBC and, and, and Channel 4 and Channel 5 and ITV have for a long time wanted this to happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the Ofcom future PSB review rumbles on and these questions around regulation, and I know we're slightly uh, going off topic, Jesse, but these these regulatory questions are going to keep rearing their heads. There is a general feeling that if Netflix are going to continue to benefit from the UK TV landscape in the way that they do, there should not be such an enormous gulf between the regulation that obliges what they do, and the regulation that obliges the PSBs, and the the PSBs are kind of joining together on this almost. And I think we're going to see quite a lot more of it as the uh, as the months roll on. But like I said, we are we are going off topic ever so slightly. What do you think? Just re- returning to the indie survey, how do you what do you think we'll be speaking about in a year's time? You know, we're we're unlocking down by this summer. We should be in a in a position that's tantamount to to pre-March 2020 normality. Where do you see us being in 12 months' time, Jesse? I think there's there's probably,
1: uh, you know, 100 different answers to this. But, I mean, just purely from my own perspective, I think a lot of the really hard work has been done. So a lot of the campaigning, the, the work to ensure there's government funds that will help productions, get back get back going uh is 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 re- going to be really important i think particularly for scripted the work that's been done on the sort of restart uh, on the restart project and the restart initiative is super important and that will really help and i think you'll see to an extent a bounce back on in, in revenues uh interestingly i was having a pre-chat with one of one of the speakers um, from this week's event kudos joint managing director martin haynes before the the session uh, which was ably chaired by our reporter uh, hannah bowler and uh, he was talking about the fact that the way again the way scripted companies account might mean that next year's indie survey probably won't see the bounce back um, that we necessarily would ne- would think because you will see more scripted commissions and you will see more scripted production this year for sure providing there is there's not another another lockdown uh, of, of similar kind of severity that we've already seen but but i think a lot of the accounting will sort of come through next year when these shows that are produced this year actually tx next next year's so are in 2022. And that could mean that the, the, the sort of the statistics we've seen this year in the survey are relatively similar next year. I'd still I still expect them to get better. And then on the flip side to that is how well the factual side or the unscripted side of the business is going to be able to recover sort of com- comparatively to where it is now. So I think it's done broadly, you know, the, the industry feels like uh, it's responded well and it's been really resilient and, and you know, uh, has, has done as much as can be done to uh, keep things as normal as possible. The question now is, is this the new normal for the time being? And are some companies going to have to accept that, you know, revenues that are down sort of 15, 20% on what they were two or three years ago is going to be the norm for a little while? It's hard to say. So I'm kind of I, f- I feel like I have more sense of what's happening in scripted than unscripted. But, yeah, broadly, it, it feels that I think the survey has highlighted the fact that the industry faced probably its biggest ever single challenge and has come through, you know, relatively unscathed, not not completely. There's a few bruises here and there few
0: bloody noses, but uh, it could have been, it could have been much, much worse. But look, it's, it's, it's been really fascinating to listen to. I really appreciate it. And there's a reason I call you the indie survey guru. You are absolutely coming out with the data. So thank you so much, Jesse. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like 50% data at the moment. <laughs> You're made of data. And now for something rather different. We have exclusive audio of John Elm's interview with prolific US producer, Paul Feig, who told John about adapting UK comedies for the US, how streaming has invigorated the genre and the progression of diversity within comedy and the industry in general.
2: Hollywood feet have finally been held to the fire about the lack of diversity and the lack of you know gender parity. So you know it look it's way behind what it should be. TV was always a little bit better at it than uh, than movies, but both were way far behind and they're very slowly catching up but it, but it's it, it is much better now than it has been in, you know in the last number of years it just has to keep going forward that way but but it, it's definitely you you definitely feel it right now i just pray that it doesn't become a thing that like then you know peter's out and they go back to the old ways but i don't think they can anymore it, it's it's too they've been called out too much and now what's happening is now people are getting these opportunities and they're producing very successful things and so nothing 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 makes you keep Expanding out that way, then that then it generates money and success. And uh, sadly, that's that's the currency of, of Hollywood. And they like to think they're altruistic, but at the end of the day, it's really if it if it's good for business, they're going to do it. But the good thing for all these other creatives who have not been allowed to do things is now they're getting the chance to prove themselves and they are proving themselves as, as they would have had they been given the opportunity a long time ago, but it's good because now it, it's just, it's waking everybody up, but there's still a long way to go.
3: Absolutely. I mean, you know, with that in mind, you know, what what kind of things need to be done also behind the camera, you know, to make sure that say female crew crews or, or people from, you know, different, And ethnic backgrounds or socio-economic backgrounds are given the. Ability and the opportunity to make them, let alone star in them. You know. I mean, oh yeah. What about? That? I mean, that
2: that's as important, and, and, and in some ways even more important than in front of the camera. I mean, in front of the camera is always going to be important because that's the representation that everybody sees. You know, if you go to the like Gina Davis's organization says, if you can see it, you can be it, and, and that's very very important. But the stories don't get told the right way unless the people behind the, the scenes are 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 you know the voices that are going to be true to that, and so it's up to everybody who has any kind of influence or power to get things made in hollywood to actively make that happen to actively find stories from and find the people who are going to do who who haven't been given the chance to do this and empower them to 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 do it and and it does go all the way down the crew you know and i'm my company's always been signed on to the inclusion rider which you know says we have to you know fight very hard to get, you know, to make sure we try to get the 50%, you know, parity and, 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 you know, just total parity behind the the, the camera, as far as, you know, gender parity, and also for, you know, for, for people of color, you know, it's something you actively have to, to force people and yourself to do, you have to get out of this default setting of like, oh, I always work with so and so and so and so and so and so let's just grab them again. And then, it, you know, it, it will slowly start to change. So that's, that's, you know, but it takes takes the people in charge to actively get out of that head of like, oh, just do this, you know, and I'm just going to hire these people and go like, wait, there's got to be other people out there. And then you discover these amazing talents.
3: Absolutely. I mean, you know, with that in mind, obviously a person who's, if we if we look at something like Bridesmaids and Ghostbusters, but a while back, you know, even, even those seem... Seem back in the, they're quite old now, so to speak. But like they were trailblazing in in, in in that regard in putting those you know female voices on screen. And we know that there is a a, a a a female version of Peep Show being readied. You know, is it is it is it about transposing transposing some of the things that have gone before into into these different voices? Is the way to to really kind of make it make it part of the fabric?
2: I mean, that's one way to do it. it, it there, there's many ways to do it. It, it. To me, it's a fun way to do it. I, you know, I really had a great time making Ghostbusters, but you know, it caused quite an uproar, which seems ridiculous now, but at the time, it was a big deal. But you know, but but that's one way to do it. Just like they did with Ocean's Eleven, they turn to Ocean's Eight. You know, that that's a fun way to do it. I like doing it with my movies because I like genres, and you know, like with The Heat and Spy, to take a genre that is very male dominated and to flip it. For me as a comedy person, I also get a lot of fun out of breaking tropes and I can get comedy out of the broken tropes, but I can also empower these, you know, these these characters and give a, a good three-dimensional female role that, you know, that, that checks a lot of boxes, but it's only one way in. I mean, it's honestly, it's just getting stories told that are, that represent the world, you know? I mean, you know, Bridesmaids seemed like weirdly such a radical thing 10 years ago because it starred all women, which is ridiculous, that that should be a radical thing. And yet it was looked upon as being a very radical thing in Hollywood, you know, to the point where I was, you know, I had a lot of female um, writer friends who were inspired by the fact that we were making that movie and who were out pitching their female-led films and they were all told by the executives, we have to wait and see how bridesmaids does, you know, which is ridiculous that one movie starring women, like, you know, when the hangover was coming out, they weren't going like, okay, we got to wait and see if this movie does well before we put three guys in a movie, you know, so that's the uphill battle you're kind of battling, but no, it's really about getting those stories told wherever they come from, you know, and just getting that representation in front of and behind the camera, because if, if movies don't look like the world around us, then we have failed.
3: Yeah, and, and and likewise for TV, is that is that also you know mirrored in the TV world? Is, is the TV world better than the film world at this? I mean, what's your experience?
2: The TV world has been better at female lead characters, I think, on the screen. I don't know if it's been so great behind the scenes, but definitely you, there was more kind of, female leads on television than in movies if you look if you you know compare the two i don't know why that is but i i think maybe movies are looked at as being much more high stakes and so much money goes into them and they come up with these business reasons of like well a movie starring a woman won't sell internationally and blah 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 and you get told this over and over again and for me, it was just kind of like going like, well, wait, why why do we just accept that? Why don't we try to make movies starring women that would actually make money? And like, you know, let's put something in it that makes it seem, you know, like with Spy, like, okay, an action movie, you know, that, that should work no matter who's in it. But, um, you know, so it, it's just, again, it's just kind of breaking that mindset and, and, and getting... It feels weird to say like and to take a chance because it shouldn't be taking a chance to put, you know, to put women and people of color in front of the camera that 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 is not, you know, that's it's it's reflects the world around us. So it's just breaking that weird business mindset that that kind of just it has this. You know, unintended, you know, it's like unconscious bias basically to not go, like, wait, okay, before you say, you know, I get pitched so many things. And over the years, it's always been like, okay, the, it always starts with, okay, so it's about, it's about this guy who blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, can I, does it have to be a guy? <laughs> you know, can it be a woman? Can you just have to be a white guy? Can it be, you know, somebody of color? And so the minute you challenge that, you know people are like oh well yeah yeah you know because like i have this show uh, that i produce called zoe's extraordinary playlist that's you know it's a great musical dramedy show and you know when when the the showrunner came in and pitched it it was about a guy and i said like i only have one note can it be a woman and he was like oh my god yes that would be great because it was all about the tech world and you know, you know just seeing how a woman's going to navigate the tech world and you know now the show's kind of brilliant because of it, and, and we've got this amazing star Jane Levy who just got nominated for a Golden Globe, and you know it, it's just challenging that mindset of just saying like okay before we accept that, what about this? What about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, just some of the creatives that that, that exist in TV are, are like. I mean, who 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 should be getting more? Kind of like some of the some of the people that you see at the moment, you think they they should be getting more, you know, projects away on on broadcasters or streamers. I mean, do you do you have some in mind? Perhaps.
2: Well, I mean, there's so many people doing great stuff. I mean, look at Issa Rae. I mean, you know, her show Insecure is so great. Now she's getting all these movie opportunities. You know, and there's I in my company, I I have a. a Two companies. We like got Feedco, which does our main things. Then we have a company called Powder Keg, where we—it's all about uh, empowering new voices, uh, you know, female voices, uh, LGBTQ, people of color. And we've had these, been doing these programs called called Fuse, uh, Powder Keg Fuse, where we get you know out of a vast number of, of of new female filmmakers who submit to us, we pick six, and then we let each of them do a a short film. And that becomes like a resume for them in the town. It's a way for us to see like who actually can deliver the goods. Because look, we're not gonna stand up for anybody who, who doesn't have the talent, who can't get it, who can't do it, you know, because that's not gonna make anybody look good. But there's so many people out there who just need that chance. And once they make it and you go like, oh my God, you're brilliant. This is so good. And then I go like, look, look at what they did. You know, just a studio that's like, I don't know, they don't have an experience or whatever. We go like, look what they did I watched them do this they did it great and they were you know great through the whole process this person is is for real and we've got a bunch of people like that coming out of out of this so you know and a lot of them are getting getting opportunities to direct in television and some just got a movie and you know so it again you gotta you gotta give the opportunity if people fail if they once they get the opportunity then fair enough then then at least we provided the opportunity and the chance to shine. And then once they do shine, then they belong to the world and we just want to sing it from the rooftop.
3: Absolutely. And as a final question, it would be remiss of us not to uh, cover our favorite segment of uh, broadcasters coverage, which is uh, we ask our interviewees what we've been watching. So Paul V, what have you been watching at the moment?
2: I gotta go. Upstart Crow, Upstart Crow is my favorite new show. I love that show so much; it makes us laugh so hard. We watch it. We, we're watching it for the second time now because I just I, there's so many things you miss in it. So yeah, I'm all about Ben Elton and David Mitchell and the rest of that cast and and Upstart Crow.
3: Fantastic, brilliant. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Paul. Uh, thank you so much for taking part. It's been great. We look forward to seeing this country when it comes on out.
2: You got it. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. And it's going to be very funny. We're very happy with what we've been getting so far. It it looks great.
0: That was Paul Feig speaking to John Elms. If you check out the broadcastnow.co.uk website, you can see a video version of that interview. Uh, So all very exciting. But Jesse Wittock is still with me as we move seamlessly onto what we've been watching. And Jesse, you've been checking out a bit of BBC One primetime. What's Stacey Dooley been up to? so stacy has been presenting
1: the bbc's latest midweek factual entertainment effort this is my house uh, it's stuck right in the heart of prime and it's a strange uh sort of reality meets uh through the keyhole format um I, 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 i really don't really know how to explain it because i um i think twitter's been quite handy actually as a sort of barometer of what it was so i switched i sort of turned it on wasn't particularly planning to watch it might might have even missed the first three or four minutes and sort of found myself drawn to kind of the bizarre sort of terribleness of it it really didn't feel like a bbc one show at all and then I found myself sort of however many minutes later at the end, like desperate to know whose house that, that these, these contestants were whose house they were actually in the format basically is four people have to pretend to live in a house and a bunch of celebrity guessers uh, from a remote location, sit around and try and unpick and unravel uh, who's telling the truth and who's lying. And uh, all of the, um, contestants are given a sort of code names they were all called fern yesterday whether they were a man or a woman and um it's just one of the strangest things i've seen on uk telly in such a long time it, it really doesn't feel like it kind of fit the the slot that it was in and max i know you're you're you know you've had a look into the ratings i don't think it performed massively well but i'm, I'm intrigued to see how it goes because it feels like one of these ones that, if twitter's anything to go by the sort of uh, just utter bizarreness of it and it, the kind of quite charming bizarreness of it has um it, it seems like it's actually creating a little kind of cult, a little cult-like following mm. and I do wonder if it, it might actually be a series that could do quite well for the BBC for BBC One in the long run even in the slot that it's in because I, I just judge I, it really felt like if you put this on it, you know Four PM. That wouldn't have felt completely alien to me. Um It's obviously the, the production values are a bit higher than that. It certainly didn't feel like there were production values of a of a, a nine PM show. But it's uh no. It, I, I, I don't really know what to say, Max. I sort of I sort of hated it and loved it at the same time. Um And I, I'm I'm, I'm going to watch more of it. So you know, well done to the producers for creating something new. It's definitely unique. I'll say that, mm. even though
0: it very much feels like you know through the keyhole. Yeah, you you described it as terror Brilliant on Twitter, which which I thought seemed seemed ample, and it's definitely something I want to watch. Just just going off the the Twitter reaction, and it, and it is um it is interesting to note because BBC One has not traditionally played around in the entertainment space on a weeknight at nine o'clock. It's tended to be very much drama or factual. So we've had This Is My House, we've had Bank Balance, Gordon Ramsay's Bank Balance, and Pooch Perfect all this year. All of which rating in a, in a kind of middle space. I think two and a half million for This Is My House is okay. Bank balance didn't do great. Pooch Perfect, again, was quite mixed, both in terms of review and in terms of rating. And, and that might be being ever so slightly kind. But there is clearly some push here from, from BBC One to keep going with this. It, it, they almost feel slightly Channel 4 anarchic vibes, don't they? Like there's a This Is My House had, had a little feel to like an old school channel four show it felt again just listening to you talk about it jesse and and uh going off Twitter.
1: yeah that is a great point max um because one of the things that really surprised me about it was the prize was was just a thousand quid and for a 9 p.m you know midweek bbc one show it, it just felt like the prize was completely sort of out of whack with the sort of the scale that you would as- that you associate with the, those sorts of slots but at the same time, again, I like that. I thought it was, just, you know, it kind of it sort of removed any proper jeopardy. But at the same time, it kind of created a sort of fun jeopardy where it was just
0: where it was all kind of quite inconsequential. Is that maybe it's that type of crazy, wacky content that people are enjoying? Uh, what with what with one thing and another. But I'm going to check it out for sure. So that's This Is My House. That's produced by expectation. I've been watching not too much this week. I finished Football's Darkest Secret. That was terribly sad, but I spoke enough about that last week. And I also started season six of HBO's Silicon Valley, which I absolutely love. It's been a little while between watching the previous series and this one, but I find it to be as funny as like, a brooklyn nine nine or or an office us but but with the like plot and character development of of like a good drama like, i just, i absolutely love that show i could i could really recommend it to anybody and it makes me it it doesn't quite make me want to work in silicon valley but it certainly wants to make me understand more about like how funny it must be to to work there and and the kind of day-to-day goings-on of just being at one of those companies. I think it, ca- it must be so well-researched because I can tell there are so many jokes that like, I don't understand, but would be insanely funny if you worked in Silicon Valley. Uh, but Jesse Wittick, look, thanks. Thanks once again. Last week, it was you hosting with me in the hot seat. This week, we reversed it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Jesse. I,
1: I thought it worked like a dream, Max. Um, yeah, pleasure. And um, I'm sure I'll be back again soon.
0: Thank you for listening to the Broadcast News Wrap with me, Max Goldbart, Insight Editor Jesse Whittaker, and the one and only Paul Fee being interviewed by our international editor, John Elms. This podcast was edited by Hannah Bowler. You can check out all 40 past episodes of the pod on Spotify and iTunes or on the website via www.broadcastnow.co.uk.